Greetings and hello to everyone. This is the Business of Betting podcast and I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today is part one of episode seven and we have Josh Lloyd joining the podcast. Josh is a lead fantasy basketball analyst at Basketball Monster, the man behind the mic on the Locked On Fantasy Basketball podcast and founder of Red Rock Fantasy Basketball. In this two-part episode, Josh talks about all things NBA, DFS, and how the daily fantasy industry is evolving. As always, you can find us at businessofbetting.com or at bettingpod on Twitter. Please fire in any questions or feedback and potential guests you would like to hear from. So thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy my chat with Josh Lloyd. Today, I'm joined by Josh Lloyd. Josh, thank you very much for coming on. No problem, Jake. Good to speak to you. So, Josh, for those who don't know about you and what you're up to, do you want to give us some uh, some background? Okay, so what I am, I am the uh, lead fantasy analyst over at basketballmonster.com, which is a site that uh, we, we specialize in doing NBA basketball predictions and projections, which can be used for season-long fantasy leagues and, of course, uh, daily fantasy NBA, where we uh, we tweak that stuff on a daily basis to uh, you know, give you ways to, to hopefully make money with uh, with DFS stuff and uh, yeah, player projections and all that sort of stuff. So I do that, and of course I, I host a, a daily podcast on the NBA on fan, on season long fantasy and daily fantasy uh, called the Locked On Fantasy Basketball Podcast. So how long have you been doing that for? Because I know the DFS industry hasn't been around forever, and obviously the season long and, and that type of rotisserie leagues back in the day has been around for a while but have you been doing that you know recently last few years or a bit longer um i've been playing it for you know playing season-long fantasy for you know almost 10 years but in terms of me uh working in the industry i started writing about season-long fantasy back in uh start of the 2013 season started the podcast about halfway through that year so it started 2014 so we, uh, we just ticked over 900 episodes of the podcast last week. So I've been doing that for the podcast for you, just a bit over three years now. And I've been working uh, full-time at Basketball Monster doing the projections for the last 12 months. Wow, congrats, 900. This is uh, yeah. this is in the first 10 here. So i got a long way to go to catch up to your to your 900 podcast. So good good stuff on getting to that stage. Do you want to tell us about how you... How you got involved in the beginning? Were you just a mad sports fan or were you sort of a math guy or what led you to get into it? I guess it's both really lucky. Um, yeah, through through high school and stuff, you know, maths always came fairly easily to me and was something that I could grasp pretty easily but never really um, had any thought process of, of taking that any further. Always was a big sports fan, you know, the you know, Australian sports, American sports as well, you know, followed uh, the AFL here, NBA, NFL, all that sort of stuff. And then you really started to get pretty heavily invested into um, fantasy NBA at the in the mid-2000s, I guess, and was successful at it. And then I was just looking for something to do as a hobby and said, you know what, I'm pretty successful here in, in just me playing in these you know, a couple of leagues a year. And there seems to be a lack of coverage around for, for fantasy basketball in comparison to, say, fantasy football, which is obviously a saturation of that sort of stuff. 
So I thought, you know what, I reckon I can, uh, I reckon I can put some stuff out, commit to it, and put out some uh, some quality stuff, and maybe that leads to something in the future. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just an outlet for me to get my thoughts out there. For where I disagree with what I see, I can actually have a, an avenue to do that. It grew. People, some people started to take notice, and uh, and it went from there. So was it tough transitioning from a full-time, as we say, real job, real life, to doing something like fantasy and projections and predictions and the write-ups and, and delivering all that content? Or was it sort of a it, – it was a difficult sort of few months and then it sort of became easier and easier because you just loved doing it? Um, well, the first, say, couple of years were, were tough because I was working two jobs pretty much. You know, I had my full-time job. I was a, I was a pharmacist. So, you know, worked that 40, 45 hours a week and then would come home from that and, and work on NBA stuff and, and write a daily article, check out stuff, you know, do a podcast, which started as about a 20 minute podcast and has now evolved into about an hour and a half every day. And then, you know, heading into the 2015-16 season is when I started off with Basketball Monster. I wasn't doing it full-time, but I was pretty much doing it full-time. I was doing it about 30 hours a week there anyway, you know, setting all the projections, setting stuff up for the day in advance, all the season-long projections, writing a 2,000-word you know, article every day, doing the hour-and-a-half podcast every day. So that was tough. That was you know, starting work in the real job at you know, 8 in the morning you know, or 7.30 in the morning and finishing up your second job at 10 at night every night for six months was uh, was hard. But then making that transition to doing fantasy full-time felt easy, felt well, not easy, but it felt like a, a relief to just actually concentrate on something and have that extra time back to put more into something that you've shown you can be decently successful at over a period of a couple of years beforehand. It's a pretty pretty awesome story because I'm sure a lot of people out there would like to sort of switch and do something like that but just haven't had the, I guess, the longevity of doing it to get to that point because, as you said, it's not probably an easy transition. So kudos for you to sticking at it and getting to what you're doing full-time now. Do you play DFS every day, as the name suggests, or are you a bit selective about it? Um, I play it. I play it every day at, at times, if that makes sense. Normally, you say on the weekends here, I'm I'm not as as uh, plugged into it because I'm not sitting down and watching every game because I've got I've got to go take my son to go play tennis or he goes and plays soccer. So in the morning here, which is when the games are on, I'm not sitting in front waiting for tip off to change my lineups. But Monday through Friday here during the week, during the season, I play pretty much every day until we head until we head into March and then all the uh, the shutdowns start happening, the weird lineups, the players with inconsistencies and the, and the coaches, yes, shutting guys down, Eric Bledsoe, Timofey Mozgov, Luol Deng for the Lakers, players in and out of lineups at random times, the unknown stuff that happened with the Kings. And at that point, I said, you know what, I have no confidence I can still win at it, but I'm not playing DFS just to play it. I'm playing it because I know I can win. And when it gets to that stage and I'm less certain of winning, I just said, I'm out. You know, start of March, I'm out. You're going to have the last six weeks of the season. So I still covered it. I still do all that stuff. But I said, I'm not putting my money out there. And I you know, really recommend it to people to really watch what sort of outlay you're putting at those types of less predictable parts of the season. Okay, so what is your advantage with DFS? You mentioned earlier the projections and predictions type stuff. Are you individually going through each player and knowing their strengths and weaknesses and how that fits in with their team and therefore you can, you know, find those matchup differences or those, you know, different teams on the road at certain times that are good or bad and those types of things? I mean, what is your without going too deep into any, you know, proprietary information or what makes you 
have that edge. What is your advantage with the DSF with the DFS? Yeah, look, I think that's it. Like you're being immersed in it pretty much, you know, twenty four seven. You're reading stuff all of the time and, and having an understanding of every single player in the NBA, what their role is on a on a day to day basis, how they may match up against a certain team. How you've got this guy coming in, it's Hassan Whiteside, for example, from Miami, and he's going against a team that over the last two weeks has allowed just a stack of rebounds. He's going to come in and got a potential to have a 20.20 rebound game. So that makes him a good value. And he might have had a couple of quiet ones in the one before and because he, he played against teams that don't allow as many rebounds. And that suppresses his price. So it's all about finding where that value comes in. Does he have a good opportunity? Has his price come down? And how do those two things mesh together and finding the value in those certain spots as well as you know, things like yeah, the way we do our projections and how that all sits based on your know, recent form, um, usage rates based on who's in, who's out, all that sort of thing. So there's no doubt then you're treating this as an investment rather than you know any other type of casual sports game. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well, obviously it's it's my job, so me providing the the information to people is is part of it, and, and being accurate with that, you know, you have to be accurate and and have. Um, I guess common sense approach to it. Otherwise, people stop listening and and won't and won't enjoy what you do. So there's there's that, and then there's also yeah the fact that I'm playing to win. I'm not playing to just uh, I'm I'm not throwing money into DFS lineups because it increases my interest in watching the games because I'm watching the games anyway. Like that's doing my job. I'm putting the money in and to win, and that's as simple as that. Yeah. Okay. Because there's certainly a perception that there's a lot of very very smart people playing, such as yourself, who are. I guess the Sharks, and then you've got that pool of money that's in there, which is not from the Sharks. Is that how it is in reality? Is it a casual versus professional environment in DFS? It's hard to judge just from over here. Obviously, I'm not allowed to play in the on, on the sites in the US. FanDuel, DraftKings, I'm I'm not able to play on those sites. And from what I understand, it's obviously a little bit of a different situation over there with that Sharks versus you know, Fish sort of comparison because um, yeah, the, the players have got. The higher higher contest size, higher prize pools, as well as the you know, players with higher bankrolls entering over here, it, it's not so much the case because our prize pools and contests are so much smaller. So I don't see it on that necessarily uh, level level that it is in the states, but it is it is something that I know that the sites have been trying to reduce or, or combat because that is even if it's not one hundred percent true, that perception is out there and that does have an impact as well. So what are your alternatives if you can't get access to those US style games with the DraftKings, Fangel, is there a vibrant market outside of the US for DFS? There's there's two major sites here in Australia. One's called DraftStars and one's called Moneyball. They're obviously quite small. Like you can talk about the you know the contests that run over there on Fangel where you've got your know, million million dollar prizes or fifty thousand dollar and multiple ones each day. And, and here, you know, the biggest prize pool you can win on a day is fifteen hundred bucks. So we're talking a really, really small contest. So over there you might have 70 different double up tournaments a day here you have one on each site so it just the, the volume of it is so much lower so in terms of me being able to you know play on this and i couldn't make it necessarily i couldn't make it a living just on playing dfs because the volume is too small but you can still go in there and make you know really tidy return on investment numbers what percentage of your money that you can get down would it be if you were in another jurisdiction where you had that volume? Are you only able to get down a, a 10, 15, 20% of what you would like, given where you are? Um, 
Yeah, that, that's I'd say that's probably oh yeah, yeah probably accurate. Maybe maybe thirty percent of, of what I, I'd like to do. And the way that I always approach playing DFS is having a really you know, smart and stable um, bankroll management strategy. So depending on what you put in or what you've got in your in your balance, you use a sort of a set percentage of that or, or you know, a set percentage range of that money each day you play. And I've gotten to the stage now with the money, and I, I didn't put in much money over on these Australian sites, but the money that I've won back now is that the percentage that I would like to use each day or my, my bankroll management rule was set up to, I can't actually spend that amount of money because there just aren't enough contests to make that worthwhile. So, yeah, I'm probably, you know, wish there was, I obviously wish there was bigger numbers and then yeah, you hope for an exponential growth in, in your balance after that. So what type of monitoring are you doing on the, the DraftKings and FanDuel's of the world even though you can't play on there? Are you keeping an eye on what's happening there, using that market information to be better at what you're doing in Australia? Yeah, absolutely. Look, we, we obviously can, we have, over on Basketball Monster, we import all that data from those sites, you know, prices, price changes, trends, you can see all that stuff, you have you know, contests, you can see how all this thing is going, ownership percentages, I see all that stuff in it. In the, the majority of my audience, whether it is over at Basketball Monster or on the podcast, is American anyway. So all the stuff that I do is catered towards that anyway. Just that when I use my own information, I, uh, I play on the Australian side. So unlike you know lots of uh, DFS content or podcasts or, or providers or anything out like that, the information I'm getting out there, a lot of you know, people will throw that accusation out there. You're throwing out misinformation so that you can win the money yourself. And obviously, I don't have that. I don't have that problem because I'm not competing in the in the bigger pools. Yeah, okay. Have you thought about moving to the US or getting involved with some type of syndicate situation there or is it purely a Australian mode at this stage? Um, no, I haven't haven't really considered moving moving over there just for for that sort of a purpose. Um, yeah, obviously I'm sure there are ways that I could I could work out to to enter it, but you get into all sorts of legal things of like uh, geolocation blocks. Do I have to you know, get it set up VPNs to try and access it? Um, you know, agreements with people to to put lineups in. It just becomes a, a bit of a messy situation. You know, withdrawals because you got to have US social security numbers and just a whole messy thing. So I just said, you know what. I, I do what I do and my major focus is providing the information and the, and the insight to people rather than, than playing and winning the money myself. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, you've got to go down the proxy path and a few other things you mentioned, so I'm sure it's a difficult situation when you really get stuck into the, the nitty-gritty of doing it. Have you, I mean, I, I know in sports betting, certainly the, the current environment is people are getting banned or reduced uh, bet sizes, things like that. Is there anything in the DFS world of a similar vein, do they? Obviously, they probably won't ban you because it's not a, it's more of a peer-to-peer situation rather than you versus the DFS company. But are they tending to to limit the sizes that you can get down in Australia? Uh, no, oh, look, they, they have limits. Like each contest has a limit. Like you can, there might be, for example, you have six hundred entry contest and you can put fifteen entries in. So it's limited that way. Um, there's no limit as to what you can uh, what you can put down in, in total over here. Like you can throw it out in you know, multitude of head to heads. You can enter every single you know, tournament or, or, or double up contest across any sport. There's none of that limit. There's just entry limits uh, across contests, which are which are relatively restricted. This might be a dumb question, but is there season long fantasy games that you can play on a sort of a certain websites where you can put in a lot of uh volume over a season long period or is that just return on investment and, and time value of money getting stuck there for a whole season doesn't make it a lucrative option 
you can do it, yeah, definitely. And uh, I, I really only started to dip my toe into doing that this season. I entered two of those two of those leagues this year. I won one of them and came like fifth in the other. So I ended up you know, with a significant return on investment. But as you say, it's it's a return on investment that comes over a six month period. So um, you got to have confidence that you're going to win them, and you can't you can't win you know, five out of seven days and, and have a have a profitable week. It's it's over the course of the season. So in terms of investment portion of that it's not it's not an ideal thing unless you're putting in your big big volumes and then it gets uh, harder to manage that over a, over a season just because you've got so many teams to try and get your head around at, at all times so that must be a bankroll issue as well because you've got 150 to 200 days of your money tied up are you trying to i mean it sounds ridiculous but are you trying to get 150x down on season long games or are you i mean it doesn't sound like a very reasonable option because of the I guess the possibility of of that return, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there there are some that have you know, fairly decent entry sizes. Majority are sitting at like a you know, hundred hundred bucks, fifty bucks, that sort of stuff for the season. And, and you, know, you you can pull in a thousand, twelve hundred as a as a winning prize and those sort of things, which is which is not bad. But you're talking about you got a one in twelve chance of, of getting that, so you got to have confidence in what you're doing. But it's not. It's not something where I'd go in there and go, okay, let's let's set up thirty teams at a hundred bucks each at the start of the season and and hope it all pays out because it is yeah then it becomes a, a bankroll issue that you've got that money sitting there and your investment doesn't come for six months if it even comes at all. Yeah. Okay. So on a day to day basis, then you've obviously got lots and lots of entries. I would imagine. What type of staggering do you have to do uh, to maximise your return? Are you trying to cover? I guess lots of different players that you like in many different teams and are you doing that manually or is there some way to automate that a little bit and get hundreds and hundreds of entries in without too much effort there are ways to to do that to to do the, the automation stuff i don't do it personally of the, the contest sizes over here don't require it and basically what i do is I, as i come in and i play the majority of my contests like 80 percent of what i what i put down is in the double up, so I'm looking for my most optimal lineup. So when I'm you know, talking about um, your yeah, DFS contest to people on the podcast, I say if you're you're putting the majority of your money into the double ups. It's not as flashy as saying I won fifty thousand dollars today, but if you're going to do it as a, a long term thing, you can just double your money every day of what you're doing and there's more consistency with that it's about finding the consistent floor rather than the the crazy upside ceiling that you need to win those large tournaments which yeah comes down more to to luck and broadness of of entry so when i'm doing it i'll put in one lineup and i'll really concentrate on those 50 50s and i'm sure people listening to this podcast would know what i'm talking about with 50 50s and double ups it's basically the same return for everybody who finishes in the top half of the field you put in 10 bucks you get 20 bucks back if you finish between you know one and 50 if you finish between 51 and 100 you win nothing whereas the, the tournaments are, are staggered where if the top 17 to 18 percent of the of the field wins and it's like you know 10,000 to first 2,000 to second, you know, 300 bucks to third, and then it just whittles right down. So you need to be right at that pointy end. So you're needing that high upside. But in terms of a cash management bankroll thing, putting the majority of your money into the, the double ups is, is a better way to, to build that bankroll and have a consistent uh, consistent income or consistent winning strategy, I guess, doing that 
and rather than just always shooting for the stars. So what I do is I put that lineup in that that consistent, hopefully one where I feel confident with the floor of it. Put that into those double up lineups, and then I throw it into one of those tournaments. And if it if it comes good and it gives me a, a return of yeah, I win it or I come second and I get my twelve hundred bucks or fifteen fifteen hundred bucks, which is the prize pool here. So be it. If it doesn't, no big deal. But if you're looking to win those big ones, you do have to have. Yeah, a core group of players that you're looking at and then diversify it and try and find the players who will be owned in fewer fewer lineups or be rostered in fewer lineups so that you can yeah, separate yourself from the, the big group of people who are going to have similar lineups. Okay. Yeah, that sounds like a deep dive into the strategy behind things. You must. Do you ever think about betting full-time or even is there a part of your operation that is a betting uh, under overs, head to head, those type of things, because I would imagine there's certain circumstances, certainly where your edge in the DFS would translate, or is that not the case? Yeah, look, it's something that I need to research more. I started doing a little bit of it last season, but that was mainly season season long uh, total over unders, you know, over fifty wins, under fifty wins, that sort of stuff, and you know, waiting on a few of those results to come in, like you know, MVP, rookie of the year, yeah, season long prop stuff, and you know, probably won seventy percent of my uh, season long over under totals in terms of the day to day over unders spreads, that sort of stuff. I think with with what we can do with our our projections and our, our formulas and stuff that we run over at Basketball Monster, that we could be profitable with that. I haven't looked into it enough because obviously I'm trying to work out the individual player projection stuff more, um, but that can easily tie into the team-based stuff. But if I can run, you know, I probably will look at doing this over the off-season, run studies on it and see how um, how you can beat that edge there. And I think there might be something to work into, but I haven't really started to look into it that much. Okay, makes sense. So the DFS stuff. Is it a completely different skill, do you think, to sports betting? I know there's obviously the salary cap aspect, and I don't know how difficult that is to get a handle on it, given I don't play sort of DFS on the NBA side, but is it a completely different skill, do you think? Um, yes and no. I think your your base knowledge of it is... Um is similar, having an understanding of the game and what's happening on a, on a micro level as well, who's in, who's out, players, teams, back-to-backs, road, have they played three games in four nights, is this player slumping because of X, did he just have a kid and he's tired, is he coming off an injury, all that sort of stuff where you add those factors in, but then it, it diverges with that salary cap differentiation part of it and trying to fit players in where they become extra important, whereas in, in a sports uh, betting sort of situation, someone who might come in at 20 minutes a game is not going to have a massive impact on the overall result, but it can really sway things in, in DFS if they're priced at the right amount. But your overall knowledge base and you know, looking at how the game is going to going to play out, I think there's a fair degree of similarity there. So what about the uh, certain sports books that offer fantasy-related bets? Have you ever delved into that at all? Um, no, I haven't. So how do you mean? Give me an example of, of, of what you mean, the, the sports books offering that. So I know certain sports books uh, around the world will have literally under over fantasy points in a game. So for example, Australian football, there might be, you know, Gary Ablett Jr. will have under over 111 super coach points or 111 and a half, sorry. And okay. you can literally bet on that. Obviously the volume that you might be able to get down on that sort of stuff is going to be very tough and very difficult given the sports betting environment. But it seems to be popping up a lot more with a lot more information out there and a lot more fantasy players who might be wanting to, 
not necessarily spend 45 minutes going through their, their DFS roster and trying to pick and fit in five or six guys into their lineup. They might just want to go, you know what, I got a little bit of an edge here. I might just try and go to the, the bookmaker and place a bet. Is that even, a, I guess, a possibility in the future, do you think? Yeah, I think it is. Like I, I personally haven't seen that myself, but it makes complete sense of being able to do that. You're, you know, obviously when you're you're creating a lineup, you're you're pretty much trying to get an idea of where that guy's points are. But on a nine man or eight man basis, you know, what do I think this guy's going to get? What do I think this guy's going to get? Where's his upside? Where's his ceiling in terms of those total points? And you can break it down to a single player thing. I think there's definite potential in being able to uh, being able to, to do that and get an edge in it. Yeah, it's probably even implied in the salary cap value on some of those big sites. And then if you think you probably have an edge with one of those players and you can't, I guess, match it up with, I might even ask you, if you want to match it up with other players to get a, a roster that fits in. So, for example, if Chris Paul is, for some reason tonight, uh, going to be your biggest play and you're trying to find different scenarios, how would you go about doing that? Would you pick players that are most highly picked and just match him up with those players so that you're maybe one point of difference. Everyone's going Westbrook or everyone's going Harden, but you know Chris Paul's a better option. Would you match him up with players that are highly picked or, or underpicked? It depends on what sort of tournament you're, you're looking at, what sort of contest. If you're looking in those uh, GPP, large player pool, large prize pool um, contests, you want to you want to go with the, the lower-owned thing, the lower-owned player. So you know, someone who has... You know, two percent, three percent ownership rather than thirty or forty or sometimes, especially you know, when we're in the playoffs, you're having you know, some players sitting at 85 percent uh, ownership, and they're the guys in those sort of um, tournaments you want to steer clear of. But in general, when you're looking at the the double ups, fifty fifties, you're taking these guys who have high ownership. You want that, and with just a couple of points of differentiation, so that even if they one of those high differentiation guys fails, you're going to put yourself still in that zone of being able to, to return your money as well. So you're getting those players. And the reason they're generally highly owned is because they've got a higher level of consistency that they're going to bring those numbers back. But otherwise, yeah, if you want, if you think that everyone's going with Westbrook, you know, switching it over to Paul and going with some other low-owned players and with maybe two or three core guys that might be owned in majority of lineups is, is I think, the way to go. So what about hedging? Obviously, in sports betting and trading and investing, you can hedge. It doesn't sound like you can hedge with regards to DFS. Is that is there any way you can hedge other than putting in different lineups? Yeah, but that's that's really the only way that, that I can see doing it is, is being able to put those yeah, secondary or tertiary lineups in or yeah, 100 different lineups, whatever you're doing. But there also comes a point where if you do that too much, you're, you cut into any sort of profit margin you make anyway because they're not all obviously going to be successful. So there is a real... Um, skill in being able to do it and that's why that sort of a process is really only possible in those high um, high prize or high uh, high payout tournaments where that if one of your 100 lineups hits you get 50 grand whereas if if it was a, a lower prize pool and you had say you put 10 different lineups into a double up where all you do is double your money then your expected value return on that is just not worth that diversity or differentiation. But in those other ones, if one out of 100 hits, then you've covered that by 10, 20, 30 fold. Yeah, right, exactly. And that's why when I was mentioning the sports book stuff, it was interesting me to me because it seems like something that would be a huge, huge value proposition for those who are playing who want to have you know single player hedges or 
just a different tool, I guess, different mechanism to um, to have another out, essentially, when you're talking about the sports betting vernacular, when they say, you know, you need to have different places to go. It seems like it would be a, an option. Do you think it's just there's too many smart or really highly talented DFS players compared to the, the middle tier and lower tier when it comes to sports betting? Obviously, you've got those high-volume, efficient syndicates who are playing quite often, and then you've got you know, different levels of sports bettors who are really competent, really good at what they do, whether it be one or two man shows or, or even just your everyday punter. When it comes to sort of DFS, it sounds like or seems like certainly looking from the outside that it's a really tough industry to, industry to crack and there's not a lot, a lot of coverage or good coverage and it's not a lot of mainstream good coverage to get um, that sort of middle tier of people involved and therefore you've really got the really smart guys playing and then you've got a, a large pool of, I guess, others. Is that sort of how it is? Yeah, it is. I think, and part of that is because it is, as you said earlier, peer-to-peer. So you can have these large syndicates in sports betting and they can go and put whatever they want to put on and they can win their money. But that doesn't preclude other people from winning as well. It doesn't It doesn't stop. Like just because they've gone and won big on you know, the Patriots covering the line doesn't mean that I can't go and win big on the Patriots covering the line. But when you're talking DFS, someone has to win and someone has to lose because you are you're going against each other. And you know, when I, I talk about stuff on my podcast, I'm looking more at those you know, middle-tier guys trying to find a way, not for them to come in and necessarily become professional at it or, or do it full-time or you know, rake in you know, six figures every year from it, but being able to do it and, and return a profit and a, and a sizable profit on a, on a consistent basis so that they you know, find themselves pushing from maybe that lower tier to the middle tier to the, the upper middle tier without actually pushing those sharks who, who do it you know, 18 hours a day and, you know, develop proprietary, you know, software to, to run their lineups, to generate their lineups, to to do all their projections similar to what, to what we're doing as well. But you had pretty decent success with, with people that listen to the show and use the site being able to be a, a positive nearly, all, nearly every season they play with it. Okay, so how do you think, have you got any ideas how the DFS sort of world can grow volume? Because certainly if, the industry is going to grow and get bigger and better and stronger. It's going to need that volume. And I think the industry is probably glad to have people like you out there giving great content out, you know, essentially for free to people who want to find it, which will help grow volume overall. And that's better not only for the industry, but also for you as you want to get more money down potentially in the future. Is there anything the industry can be doing to grow that volume that you can sort of think of? I think especially over here, it's an awareness thing as well. Like it's, it's just the, the the concept of of fantasy sports in Australia is a is a real uh, different one to what it is over over in the states. So for the the sites trying to grow it here, they've got you know, they've got work to do because they've got to not only you know because in in the states fantasy is probably the, the, the biggest form of gambling, whether it's season long, whether it's you know, March Madness pools over here because our sports gambling has been legal for so long that. It, you know, they've got a lot of work to, to get into that, but it's more about those things that, that are popping up, as you said, like you know, individual player props, not necessarily um, fantasy stuff, but it might be you know first goal kicker stuff, you know most most points in a game, and then getting people into that side of it, and then you know, I guess leveraging off that and and getting people to create those lineups, and it is growing. You see the size of contests growing here. Moneyball's only been around for two years. Draft Stars has only been around for one year. So they've got a, a bit of way to, to go, and advertising's just started popping up on, on TV over here. So they do have a bit of a way to go. But it's 
it's a big mindset change over here because sports betting is so much more ingrained than what fantasy is, whereas in the States, you know, fantasy has such a strong foothold for the last 20, 30 years, and it was just a, a, a way to move forward from that rather than trying to you know, swing, I guess, the, the way that people see things, which is what happens over here. So I'm Jason Robbins, and I give you a call tomorrow and say, Josh, uh, we're worried about legal sports betting hitting the US. You have a good sort of insight in the industry. You see what happens here with, with my company. What can I do to, I guess, prepare for the storm that is legal sports betting when it hits the US, given what Australia's like and, and potentially your peers will be switching over to sports betting if they want to get more volume down? What would you say to Jason Robbins? Have you got any sort of... I guess ideas certainly for the US where it is a mature market and they have sports like baseball which is a statistics heavy and it's a strong statistics and sabermetrics culture um, and then obviously NBA where you've got sort of the volume what can they be doing in the US I guess from an isolated perspective where there's no sports betting now to sort of prepare for that and try and make it a, a more friendly environment given they have a big sort of monster waiting in the background to come in um, good question um, I think what will happen, and you touch on it, if if and when sports betting um, becomes legal, is that they will suffer an initial drop of volume. But I think that the people that might go and do that might uh, might find that them being able to consistently win money becomes harder in in sports betting if it's not something they have been, I guess, looking at consistently for the past fifteen years, ten years, five years, and that initial learning curve might say, you know what. I'll go, I might go back to this thing that I know and thing that I've been you know, relatively successful at, but it's all about managing the expectations of people. And I know that, that these sites will, will go in there and they're, they're talking about, and they, they do it less now, but you know, let's go in and you can become a millionaire. And that's what disenfranchises people initially as they come in, oh, I didn't, hey, I didn't win a million in my first month. This is this is terrible. This is rigged. This is um, useless. I'm, I'm bad at it. Whereas I think maybe a, a different different approach. And then they're starting to move to that now more like you can play this with your mates. You play that with your friends, get some money, get bragging rights, you know, be invested in, in, the, in the players rather than a, a total score outcome and I think that's the way that they, they need to push but there will definitely be some uh, some sort of hit when uh, when it does become legal but I, I think it will bounce back. So how has the DFS sort of culture and I guess DFS in general changed since it began because it's obviously not that old. Um, has there been sort of fundamental changes since the first few seasons that it's sort of existed to now? Um, yeah, look, the, the changes are are things that they, they do in terms of you know, limits on uh, on contest entries, on you know, um, beginner contests, um, just different. So so you're not getting that problem of people saying, oh, my God, I'm going up against this same person every time and they're going to kill me and this guy's a, a shark and they're in every tournament. And, and being able to, to separate that out and improve, I guess, the, the retention rate that way and the fun factor for people because they aren't getting uh, – they aren't getting killed on a consistent basis, so there's been more of a of a of a change for that, more of a I guess transparency uh, sort of sort of feel to to this is what we're trying to do to show you that you're not just there to get beaten. And I think a lot of that comes from people, as, as I touched on earlier, not not investing in in it in the right way of going in there, throwing all their money into this tournament, going oh, oh of course of course this person. Um, won the prize, look how much money they 
you know, look, look at them, they've got all these lineups, but they don't realize that that person probably lost, you know, 20K the day before by putting in, you know, 200 lineups. And that overall, look, they're not winning it every day, but it, it's a perception thing. So changing that perception is, is definitely swinging in the right direction, I think. What type of data and information can you get or what's available from from those sites where you're playing? Can you get that sort of lineup information and, I guess, player profiles on who you're up against and what their uh, entry sizes are and what their number of entries are and that type of stuff? Or are you just finding that elsewhere? You find most of that elsewhere. Like, I can't delve into that stuff um, as much because you know, I get banned from the site, so I've got to get that through third-party um you know, I, I get banned because of you know, my uh, my geolocation, obviously. But you, you can see who players are and and, and their names and, and uh, I guess contest history as well. So and people who who are sort of even semi into the DFS uh, scene will know who the, the bigger players are and, and know those names and know their usernames across the sites. And it's pretty straightforward to to see those sort of guys out there. But in terms of you know when I'm looking at it, I don't really look at someone. Yeah, just from when I'm playing over here, there, there are players that you see their name pop up all the time. And go, oh, this guy has you know I've seen this guy win a couple of times. I recognise this name, but I don't go into it and say, oh, what's what's he doing with his lineup? How's he constructing his lineup? Because if you're just following someone's trends like that, you're never going to beat them. You're going to at best equal them. So what's the point of that? Yeah. Okay. So you need to differentiate yourself, otherwise you're no chance anyway. Yeah, because if you're just going to copy someone else, then the best you can do is be the same. So how does that end up? You can you can look at their stuff and go, okay, I understand the theory of what they're doing, but you can find that in, in many different many different areas as well. It's about get, gaining an understanding of whatever game that you're playing and, and developing that theory from there rather than thinking that these um, you know, so-called sharks have the answer to everything because they don't win every day. And as I said, they'll they'll suffer big losses and, and big losses days and days in a row. But they they have this, and people think, oh, it's not fair. They've got this big bankroll. The reason they've got this big bankroll is because they were good and they built it up. It's not like they all came in with like, oh yeah, I'm starting this off with a million dollars, so you guys are all screwed. Like they they won their money by by being good at that or or playing poker or whatever they were doing. But they they won the money by being good at it and. And that sort of advantage does does help them, but you can you can still you can still win enough money to make it profitable and, and fun and enjoyable. So, how is the DFS community? Because certainly, I'm obviously living in the US, so I see that sort of gambling Twitter in the US, and it's there's a lot of venom and angst certainly in the US with touts and certain gambling sort of providers and communities here cop a fair bit, and obviously Australia, there's other issues whether it's you know bookmaker ads flushed everywhere and advertising and then certain companies sort of linking up with that. What is the DFS uh, community like? Yeah, there's a bit of that that, that happens with it as well. The uh, in the Australian DFS community, I don't really interact with them at all. Um, I know some of the names, but I'm, even they say the US DFS community, I know the names, but I'm not interacting. I'm not jumping on the DFS you know, forum sites and, and discussing any of this stuff. I try and keep out of that as much as possible. And I and it's deliberate in my sense because I don't want to get you know, sucked into conflict of interest discussions or you know the the notion of uh, boys clubs and and that sort of stuff. I want to go out there, put my information out that I get uh, from an ind- on an independent basis. Like I work this stuff out myself and, and put it out there and have people you know use what I say. And I, and I deliberately don't go out there and say this is a lineup. Yeah, you know, use it, and they're pl- and I, I have an issue with that. I have an issue with 
um, with that sort of a, a mentality of like, yeah, subscribe to you know, subscribe to me twenty dollars a week, and I'll give you winning lineups every day. I'll DM them out on Twitter to you. I have a real issue with that. People ask me, like, oh, can you just you know, sell lineups? I, I just don't believe in that. I'd rather provide the information and and you do with it what you want and get the skills to become someone who is uh, who is better in that inter- industry rather than just spoon feeding. Here is a lineup. Go and play it. And I just don't think that's the that's the right way to go. So there is a, a bit of venom towards that sort of stuff about you know, lineup sellers and people copying other lineups and the the fact that those lineup sellers will then you'll go and enter a tournament and you might see the same lineup in there a hundred times and that 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 can be a problem. And I really you know, try and steer clear of that as much as I can. Yeah. Okay. Sounds like similar issues overlap so do any of the dfs sites help the bigger players because obviously there would be an incentive to create more volume do they offer any type of incentives for those bigger players to sort of get that volume into the markets at all it's a good question i've 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 never really um looked into it because i'm not dealing with those bigger sites really i'm sure that there um is some sort of incentive but they also want to make it that they're not providing advantage to those people that others think are, you know, destroying everyone else on a daily basis. There's always, you know, sign-up incentives and, um, you know, promo codes for first deposit bonuses and stuff like that, um, which goes that way. But I don't don't see it enough because I'm not ingrained in that DFS culture or, you know, forums and, and dealing with those guys as much as, as much as um, I, I could be, and that's a, a deliberate thing. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to part one with Josh. Uh, keep an eye out next week for part two, and we go even deeper into DFS, NBA, and some more general basketball topics. So, as always, thanks a lot for listening, and uh, be sure to see next week's episode, part two, with Josh Lloyd.